Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide entrepreneurial education and business training to visual artists, to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. This episode, I'd like to give a shout out to our Colorado listeners. We appreciate you tuning into the Thriving Artist Podcast and recognize that you're known for fantastic artists like Robert Venosa and Joel Swanson. Now, our guest today is Ari Chung. Ari is an author, illustrator, designer, and art director in the gaming industry industry, and founder of Storyteller Academy, which offers courses, workshops, and critique groups to help authors develop their stories. Ari's children's books are published by Macmillan Publishing, and he's worked at Pixar and Walt Disney Imagineering. Welcome to the show, Ari. Thanks for having me. So Ari, it's great to have you. You've worked at Pixar in production and became an illustrator after that. Tell us about the transition. Yeah, so I worked as a production scheduler at Pixar, and I worked on Monsters, Inc. and The Credibles. And while I was there, I got to see firsthand how these movies were being made and, and how artists contributed to telling their sto- telling the story and, and visually coming up with the concepts. And I just knew I wanted to do that in, instead of making spreadsheets. So that uh, gave me the courage to actually quit my job at Pixar. And then I went off to study at Art, Art Center. Now, uh, you write in your blog about how you won a, a Best Portfolio Award and landed an agent that way, and then found out you weren't very good at telling stories. Can you tell <laughs> us about navigating that point in your early career? Yeah, so, um, you know, after I graduated Art Center, I knew I could illustrate, and I was working in the games industry, and it's funny because sometimes you think you know more than you do know, and I could illustrate fine, and I thought I could tell stories, but I had never really written or illustrated a full picture book dummy or made a lot of it on my own. And so I had ideas, but I hadn't had them reviewed by agents or editors. And after winning the portfolio reward at an SCBWI event, I got actually hooked up with a high profile agent and he started looking at my stories. And that's where he just told me that I had a lot more work to do. And so you know, it was hard to hear because I was a lot further away from my goal than I thought, but it was also the right thing I needed to know at the time. And I just really dedicated myself to making my own stories and actually learn how to tell stories through coming up with a concept and really designing a beginning, middle, end, and a hook. Well, you know, some of our listeners may know that in another life, besides being the host, I am a corporate storyteller and uh, a storyteller in uh, a lot of ways and, and actually have taken some storyteller courses recently that I really enjoy from uh, a place called the Story Storyteller Studio. Uh, or story studio, and also uh, am really interested in uh, sort of the comedic uh, storytelling that a lot of, it's a whole genre of comedy. In fact, we just went to the Comedy Cellar last night and saw the the Storytellers show. So it's just a real treat, Ari, to have you here. And I'm going to probe your mind and poke you with sure. a stick and see what we can squeeze out of you today. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> because sounds uh, it's partly for the audience, but I want some of this for me too. So... I'm going to ask you first, um, now, just a little bit more background. You attended Art Center College of Design, and I, I wonder, how did you make the decision to actually attend art school? Well, I knew, actually, before I went to Pixar, I worked in corporate America as a consultant, and Pixar was the stepping stone to learning about a creative life and how the artists worked in this industry. And at Pixar, I met so many people that went to either CalArts or Art Center, and that's how I knew 
to explore those two schools. And upon visiting Art Center, I just knew that was the place for me. So that's how I landed at Art Center. And then, yeah, after that, uh, I just worked in games. But what was your next question? Well, you, you write a bit uh, also. And, of course, uh, we've dug into your blog with a fine-tooth comb. And, and you write a bit about being on the fence about whether it was actually a sound investment uh, to go to art oh, school. And, and right. I'm curious, you know, what does an education really offer that you can't get in the real world? Yeah, so art centers, if you don't know about private art schools, are it, private art schools are just extremely expensive. I think my education at art center cost nearly uh, $200,000. And I, to be honest, I loaned most of that because, you know, my family is, comes from humble beginnings. And um, the the decision to go to art center was actually based on doing a lot of research on the alumni that have went there and the reputation and then visiting the school. I just saw that they had an A-plus curriculum and setting and the students there were very focused and very, were just set up well to succeed. And, and that's why I actually made that financial decision to go to Art Center, even though that it doesn't make a lot of business sense from a, a financial standpoint when you look at how much money you make when you come out versus when you go in. But for me, I just knew that if I was going to become an artist, I was going to do it all the way or none at all. And so I wanted to give myself the best opportunity to be, to become the best artist I could be. And that's, that's really the reason why I chose to go to Art Center. And I think that, you know, in today's world, you can study on YouTube. There's so many resources out there. But really, you're still looking for the best information that's organized and also that has a thriving community that supports you and that people are working hard in that community so that way you grow together. Um, there are a lot of art schools, and some are better than others, and some are fantastic. And online training can be really good, but it really just depends on the students and the instruction and the culture that's there. Well, you know, I just assumed, Ari, that, you know, artists make so much money that going yeah. to art school just kind of pays for itself in the first year. I mean, you're like, <laughs> you're like surgeons. You go where you want, right? Uh, no, I'm kidding. So, <laughs> well, I'm curious, though, you talk about it not being, you know, necessarily the best investment. And, you know, one uh, example you use is just because of the prevalence of other opportunities to learn. Uh, so granted, but what if anything was missing that reality demanded of you, but that, you know, art school did not prepare you for? Oh, the things that art school doesn't prepare you for. Um, I would say for the most part, it's it's really the business and marketing side of things. I have so many friends who are artists and designers, and they all say that they wish they learned more business. And I think that um, schools are not, especially art schools, are not equipped to teach you business because the world is changing so quickly and that the best way of learning business is actually just to start doing it and to have a small business where you are marketing and selling. Um, I think that uh, at Art Center, they did equip us to get jobs and to make our portfolios, but it really wasn't equipped to start a business or to be entrepreneurial. And I think most art schools are like that. Um, and the truth of business is that you have to not only have a great service or product, but you have to have a marketing machine that gets you out there, that gets you awareness. And you have to have a, a, a process of making sales consistently. And I think that's probably the biggest lesson that I've learned in the business world after leaving Art Center 
is about setting up an organization and setting up your processes to consistently pr- produce these results. Well, of course, you're singing our song when it comes to uh, trying to provide business training, entrepreneurial education. Yeah. Um, you, we, we sort of do it after the fact precisely because so much of that is lacking in, in art school. And, and of course that's the, the missing glue that makes it, uh, you know, possible to actually make a living. So, um, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I, I want to ask you a couple of questions about you becoming an author before we sort of move on to, uh, sort of the learning portion of the show. And so I'm curious, um, what was the first big break of your career? What would you say is the moment? <laughs> oh, for, for children's books is absolutely when I went to the 2012 SCBWI summer conference in LA. So for the folks who are not familiar with SCBWI, SCBWI stands for Society of Children's Books, Writers and Illustrators. And it's just a great organization filled with people who love to make books and are tied to the book industry. And so there's two main conferences every year. But my big break came at the 2012 conference when I signed up for an illustrator intensive. And the assignment was to actually create a, a story that has a beginning, middle, and end. But what was really helpful about the assignment was just how simple the assignment was. It said to have a character, to have a problem, to uh, escalate the problem it, throughout the story. What's the peak of the story and how does the story resolve? And I think previous to to that, I was working on a lot of stories, but they were way too complicated. I didn't know how to simplify, which, um, you know, in storytelling it, it, and just good design is a lot of the process is actually simplifying and clarifying your idea. But that exercise helped me grow in that way. And I actually made this concept called Ninja, which became uh, my first picture book, which uh, led me to work with the agent that I have now. His name is Ruben Pfeffer. And that eventually led to a three-picture book deal with Macmillan. And I've been working with Macmillan ever since. So that was definitely my biggest break. Yeah, so I'm interested in this point. You know, you, you got a new agent um, the second time around after attending an illustration workshop. And this time it led uh, to uh, a three book deal uh, with Macmillan. And, but of course we had talked about that in your blog, you talk about landing an agent a while back and then finding out that you weren't really, really that good at telling stories. And so you have this yeah. before and after situation, uh, you know, the first time you got an agent and then the new agent. And so I'm curious, you know, what, what was really different at this point in your career? Was it just, um, having gotten some learning under your belt or what did networking perhaps, for instance, or, or getting out there play a big part in, in career development? Was it really the conference and sort of meeting up with other authors and agents in general? I, I, what, there must be some pivot that was seminal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you that the biggest pivot was when the first agent uh, dropped me, it was because I just couldn't tell a story. I didn't have enough mileage in making stories and making dummies. And, you know, a lot of times when when we become motivated, it's oftentimes because we have a challenge or or we have a disappointment that we want to rebound from. And so I knew that I needed to make a consistent effort in making stories and making dummies and learning how to tell a story because that was what was lacking. It wasn't that I couldn't draw or couldn't design and you had to do that fine. And uh, at the time I was actually working at a video game job and I just wasn't enjoying that job and my role there. 
because it wasn't what I wanted to do. And so I actually forced myself to uh, to go to Starbucks and to work on my stories consistently, practically every day after work. And that was the biggest pivot is that I grew as a storyteller just by making a lot of stories and making a lot of um, dummies. And a lot of them, a lot of the stories didn't go anywhere. Um, it didn't seem like I was growing at the time, but when I look back, I was absolutely growing. I was growing in so many different ways. And then that prepared me to become uh, able to make Ninja for the 2012 conference, which then just put me on the map with Ruben and with editors from Penguin and Macmillan. But it all just came from that initial getting dumped to feeling I just, just feeling and knowing that I wasn't a good storyteller yet and that I had to put in the work and then um, using, you know, using that, that unhappiness that you have sometimes with when you're not where you want to be to fuel yourself, to actually discipline yourself and to put in the extra work, you know, you're actually working on top of work because you already have a full-time job, but you've got to set up that other time to, to make your goals happen. Well, you know, Ari, I, um, before we go to the, the side where I started asking you a, a few more business questions, I want to, uh, first I want to say that I, I've been there too. You know, I, the most powerful thing I heard walking into a story class, uh, at story studio was, um, you know, I, I said, uh, you know, why, why do all my stories fail? I feel like I don't have anything. And, and, uh, the person said, because you're not telling stories, you're telling anecdotes. Your stories don't show a change. And when you don't have a change, you, you, all you really have is an anecdote. There's no arc. And I'm like, okay, I get that, but how do I fix it? And, and so that became sort of the, knowing there was a problem became the unraveling. Uh, but, uh, Ari, I want to ask you one sort of, you know, pivot question before we get into the business side, which is you, you mentioned having, uh, you mentioned having a, a licensing mentor, uh, in your, in your website, you talk about this. What, what did you know about licensing your images, uh, before the publishing process and, and what did you learn or were there any surprises? Well, um, I'm I'm uh, I'm pretty curious about the business world. I've always been that way, and um, whenever I'm curious about something, I try to find somebody who's uh, who's working in that professional field and and try to uh, gain a mentor. And so, I actually went to the Licensing Expo, and I was paired up with Jerry Cole, who became a mentor to me. And Jerry, uh, was, he's been in the business for so long. He's one of the first entertainment sort of licensing agents. He um, represented the Muppets way back in the day. So anyhow, Jerry actually taught me about the art of licensing and sort of the business aspects of pairing the right product to the right sort of intellectual property. And it was a real eye-opener because I, I had already had knowledge about the business model in terms of, you know, a royalty fee and the roles of the licensor and the licensee. That's pretty straightforward, but what's much more difficult to understand is actually what makes a good pairing between the two. And so Jerry was the first person that helped me understand that world and helped me understand the value of intellectual property and how intellectual property could be leveraged by, um, by larger corporations. And then when I got into publishing, you know, publishing is a great platform for you to grow a brand and grow your audience. If you have a a book that sells really well, then you start gaining some uh, real value in your in your brand, and that's something that you can build over time. 
so when I got into the publisher world, I, I've definitely have always kept all my rights to all my art. And, you know, at some point, perhaps they can be licensed. I think you can also grow a, a licensing strategy from the artwork that you make. So, of course, we love what you're talking about. Um, yeah. We've done courses within our graduate program at the Clark Healings Fund about intellectual property and licensing. Uh, it's near and dear to our heart to uh, talk to visual artists about thinking ahead, uh, mm -hmm. planning for what is the future. Don't just sign a contract that says all rights in perpetuity. Oh, no. Uh, because someone tells you that, you know, that standard, you have to sign that or no one will work with you. That's nonsense is what the standard nonsense is what that is. Absolutely. And, but finding a strategy that, that, nurtures your career in the long term. Uh, I love that you're sort of underscoring that. Right. So I want to pivot now and um, dig into uh, some of the business takeaways we can we can sort of have from the trajectory of your career. Um, so I want to ask you about Storyteller Academy, your current business as a business. Um, but first, but first, it's also your, your second business. The first business, um, as I understand it, was a business that did art decals um, for sort of children's rooms, I, I think is how it worked. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could tell us about that one precisely because that one failed. I, I'm so glad that you asked about this because I've learned so many lessons and just by making mistakes and, you know, oftentimes these business lessons are hard to find online or or study in 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 a class because they're so specific to an industry. And so I, I can spend a few minutes talking about what I've learned from the first business and describe what it was. So uh, I started this business called Live in a Story. And at the time and still now, you know, wall decals are very popular amongst parents to decorate their kids' rooms. And for the most part, wall decals, uh, the wall decals that exist in the market are very cheap and they're plasticky and they don't look very good. And so I saw an opportunity to, to license children's book artwork and to uh, my vision for, for the company was that we would provide solutions, basically high quality wall decals for parents to decorate their children's rooms with very safe, non-toxic, but beautiful wall decals that actually look like paintings. And so I actually, uh, rented an office. I bought a printer. We handmade these things ourselves. And it was a great lesson in terms of learning about product market fit and, and expenses and costs. Since we were manufacturing these in the U.S., our wall decals were $150, $200. And what I discovered and why the business ultimately failed was that most people are not willing to pay more than $30 for their wall decals. And so you know, uh, I thought that there was a great business opportunity in selling to parents, but uh, I actually learned through being in the market that most parents were extremely price sensitive and that also most parents, and this was a little disheartening for me as an artist, couldn't tell the difference between artwork that was licensed from a children's book to more generic artwork that was maybe even just vector artwork. And so what I thought I was bringing a lot of value in terms of our value proposition wasn't seen by that customer. And ultimately, we weren't able to make enough sales to justify continuing the business and losing money. And so I had to shut it down. Um, you know, with some retrospect, uh, some time to sort of look back on that experience, what I've also learned is the value of marketing and knowing how to reach your target audience. 
And so I actually think that that business could have worked if I had more marketing experience and if I knew how to target customers better, because I do actually think that there are enough designers and more higher end parents that do value that and be willing to to spend hundreds of, of dollars, perhaps even more than $200, maybe even spend five, $600 or $800 because instead of hiring someone to paint their room, that they could have have these wall decals and perhaps they would want someone to install it for them. Um, but I did not have enough marketing experience to A, identify who those customers would be and how to then advertise to them and reach them and educate them on the product. And then after that, I, I didn't have a good sales process and be able to close sales. So what I've taken away from that whole experience is, is actually that is how important it is to find product market fit and what you're trying to do and where you sit in the marketplace and having the sales and marketing process to, to close sales and to make sales consistently. Oh, that's, that's uh, so fascinating. So, you know, you, I, I work on multiple podcasts and, and internet media shows. And one of the ones I'm working on, uh, it's in development, uh, is uh, we're talking about um, how individual, let's say, entrepreneurs and solopreneurs and, and contractors, um, what the challenges are and what they miss in their first go around. And very often it is what you're underscoring. The one is what problem do you solve and for whom? And if it's not clear enough what the value proposition is, then you sort of uh, get lost in the generic version of you, yeah. uh, which is usually easy to come by, highly commoditized and doesn't pay very much. And plus you have the burden of, of trying to outsell the competition with no value proposition. And the second is not having sort of uh, the understanding that you need to sell for yourself that ultimately um, you can't just 100% outsource it and you can't just ignore sales. The clients, you won't be able to build it and the clients will come. You, you must have a, a sales strategy to connect with those uh, prospects for whom you, you solve a particular problem. And then, of course, you've underscored the marketing side of it, which is um, not so much the need just to have a value uh, proposition that's clear and distinct. That's a, a sales issue. But the marketing issue is um, how do I communicate? that clearly? How do I convey it in a way that people grasp it readily and it's, and it's sort of understandable? So I think what you did is you, you sort of harnessed the trifecta of the three reasons that small entrepreneurs uh, fail at a, at a given effort. Uh, it was a brilliant answer to, um, did failure teach you anything? <laughs> well, I know because I've done it and I failed. <laughs> I've thought a lot about these things. And, you know, I would add, I, I think this would actually be really helpful to the audience because as artists, we also come out of making art from our own love of craft and what we do. And one of the biggest lessons I've learned actually is when you become an entrepreneur, there's a couple of shifts that you need to make. And I would say the first one is not centering your business in terms of your, your entrepreneurial business around you, because it's not about you anymore. It's actually about the product or service that you're offering to someone else to solve their needs. And so uh, I, I see this as a common mistake with, with lots of artists who are entrepreneurs is they focus everything about themselves and their work when most people actually don't know them or don't, if, if it's not solving a problem that the audience needs, then you actually don't have a strong value proposition as you talk about. And then the second point I'd make is that I've, that I've actually been learning pretty recently was how much time that you actually need to allocate to marketing and to sales 
and I would I would say it's fifty percent of your time. Um, and most artists, we want to just focus on the making. But if you don't focus if you don't focus on the constant marketing channels that you're that you're building and awareness and how you're providing value to to the audience, and then offering a service. If you're not doing that 50% of the time, you just you're you're just not going to get enough traffic and enough awareness to be able to close sales. And so it's actually about budgeting your time correctly. And that was actually something that I've had to learn probably in the last two years about dedicating more time to building marketing and, and uh, sales and customer service. Well, that's really good advice. Um, I think the average industry standard is uh, you know for every um, three days that you spend, uh, making something, spend a day selling. So, um, not quite 50%, but if you, if you add in, you said sales and marketing, if you add in the other business requirements, um, of running a business, you know, you may be close to right. Um, certainly it is drastically underestimated people that, um, spend less than 5% of the time on the business side and 95% of the studio rare, you know, they're utterly dependent and utterly, uh, powerless very often um, yeah. to change their career. Right. Now, one thing, Ari, I like about um, what you did, so failure conditioned you for success. And, um, you know, a lot of people sort of don't get that. I mean, you know it because you've started a business and, and as a serial entrepreneur myself, and I can say anybody that's ever started more than one business knows that the failure is essential. You need to fail uh, rapidly and fail often so that you sort of learn how to succeed and what, what it takes. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that means that sort of business is an experiment and, uh, and that leads us into sort of some myths, uh, about, um, you know, businesses, there's some magic, uh, secret to getting it right the first time. And so, um, as we, uh, talk in this next segment about, um, takeaways from the previous one, I wonder, um, was there a business plan for Storyteller Academy, the, the business that succeeded? Was there a, a developed business plan? And if so, how was it developed? Yeah, so it's actually a, a business plan sort of in work in progress. Um, I think one thing that was was actually instrumental in Storyteller Academy from the beginning that was not in place from from uh, Live in a Story, the Waldy Cow business, was that with Live in a story. I actually did a ton of research about the market, about prices, about just about as much as I can learn about competitors and where we would offer things. And then we spent all this time making the product. And we spent very little time actually getting out in front of the audience and testing and actually testing whether our, our theories were right or not. And so I read a few books. One of them is called uh, Will It Fly by Pat Flynn. Another one is Lean or Lean Startup, and it talked about the concept of getting in front of your audience, being a service, and actually testing your business idea by offering, by pre-selling something. So with Storytel Academy, I actually just started with a very small uh, post on my Facebook page, and I just said, hey, I'm thinking about teaching a class, and uh, I just want to know if you'd be interested in taking it if, if I built it. And so... Uh, within the first hour, there were over 30 comments by Monday. There were over 45 comments that they all that these people wanted that were they would be interested. And I emailed their friend Steve Cho. He's a serial entrepreneur, um, and he runs the My Wife Quit Her Job podcast and and blog. And I emailed him. Um, I'm a student of his, and he uh, he told me that's awesome. Now you got to run a webinar, and you got to you have to close those sales and prove it. 
And so I did that. I just hustled like crazy and I, and I, um, and I ran a webinar. I ran Facebook ads. And as you're saying, you know, fail and fail fast or just do things fast and experiment. And that's what I did. And I, and I was able to close 42 sales in that first week. And basically from that blog post to the time I ran the webinar, it, w- it was a week, I think it was like eight days. It was so fast. And what I was able to do in one week was that I wasn't able to do with, you know, with running, living a story for a year and a half was I found product market fit right away. And I validated my business idea. And, you know, from day one, Storyteller Academy has been successful. We've always had successful launches and it's about marketing and education and then proving value and closing sales and having that product market fit. So we didn't have a a super solid business plan from the very beginning. It's it's actually something that I'm developing as we're actually developing business processes and, and, and developing our marketing and sales. And I think like a business plan is really helpful in knowing where you want to go and a roadmap, but you need to make sure that it's not just a plan, that it's not just something that are numbers on a spreadsheet that isn't tested. And that's, I would say that's the biggest lesson that I've learned is that you need to build these processes that, that are built on asking your customer what they need, what their, what, what their needs are, and then building solutions around that. And then to start testing that and to then to, develop your business plan from those needs. I'll just give you a specific example with Storytell Academy is, you know, our mission is to help storytellers, uh, excuse me, aspiring storytellers learn the craft of storytelling and get better at their craft. Um, That way they can get published. And so the way that we're able to do that successfully is by actually learning about our customers and knowing where their struggles are and asking them where their struggles are. And so the classes we develop are then specifically targeted to where those students are at. And so in, in that way, that's how you develop your, your curriculum and your business model and, and your marketing. Yeah, so uh, the point that you're making about uh, doing some kind of market research, a lot of people wonder how to do that. And you know, sort of you illustrated a, a quick way to get proof of concept. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that strengthens uh, any kind of an investment-grade plan or investment-grade proposal where you want to get other people on board. You know, yeah. you need to sort of prove that your idea has legs. Um, so that's important. And certainly... Uh, something um, our working artists that uh, are going through our graduate program could learn from that, you know, uh, what are you going to do to to prove that your plan is, is feasible? Um, you have to show feasibility. And a good way to do that is to demonstrate that there's a market and that people want it um, in, in some compelling way with numbers. You also talked about the fact that you know, I asked you if you had a plan, you said, well, it's sort of a plan in progress. And, you mm-hmm. know, there's a, an immediate knee jerk myth that comes up that, well, you can't, you can't run a business without a, uh, a business plan. You know, you got to have that all complete and then you can execute. And that's nonsense. I mean, in the end, we have this myth of sequential planning and execution that you can sort of, yeah. you can get the plan perfect. And if it takes you a year to make the plan, then great. But once you have the plan perfect, then it's all downhill from there. You just execute and it comes out the way you thought. And anybody that's ever sort of landed in a helicopter in, in a marshland to fight a battle or has uh, started a business or has done anything where 
where um, the ground is not the reality. It could change. There are environmental factors. You know, you, people are not automatons. There are other. <laughs> it's an open system. People can do other things you didn't you didn't plan for. Knows that the plan is not reality. The plan is a starting point. So, what you learn in effective business planning is planning and executing in tandem, rather than this sort of sequential. Uh, waterfall model where you, you do all your planning and then your execution. So I thought that was kind of a good demonstration of, of how you sort of switched from your initial plan, which you, you didn't quite fully think out, but you kind of had what seemed like a complete plan to the new business. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you just a couple of quick questions about this, and then I want to switch a little bit to uh, some of the, the emotional and psychological side it makes one effective. So how often do you revisit your plan and what are your plans to scale uh, the Storyteller Academy at this point? Or do you have hurdles uh, in the way of scaling or plans for scaling? Oh, absolutely. So the way that we plan is actually on an annual basis in terms of our big picture goals and what we can do. And then we break them down quarterly. And then from our quarterly goals, we just really focus on the quarter that we're in. And so I'll give you an example of that is uh, we're planning on expanding to six classes this term. And these six classes are specifically designed to help people learn more about the publishing process. There's a class with with Ariel and Melissa, who are both editors at Chronicle. So they'll so people that will take that class will get firsthand experience with editors that work in the industry that they want. And they'll, they'll understand whether they're submission ready or not. And then we have classes on illustration that with rock star illustrators in the children's book industry like Vanessa Newton, and you will get better at illustrating books because you're going to learn from such a pro. And then I'm also teaching some art classes, but you know we actually have to plan these classes based on where our students are at and what would help them the most. And then there's all the production that goes into making a course and as well as the marketing plans. So this first term, we're just actually creating two new classes. We're creating a class on how to write manuscripts with Jim Aberbeck. And then I'm teaching a very basic drawing class because I think drawing is so important for everyone to take and to learn. I think drawing is like math, that once you learn math, then you can do these very empowering basic things that everyone needs to know. Everyone needs to know how to uh, balance their checkbook and, and make calculations in their head. Um, just like I think everyone, if you're a storyteller, I feel like everyone should learn how to visually communicate, and that means drawing. So we're, we're, we're planning these two classes. We're actually in production on both of them right now. And so that's one way we're scaling. And then the second way that we're scaling is actually perfecting our marketing and doing social marketing as well. So there's, you know, the world these, these days with technology, there's so much opportunity to get out there. But it also takes a lot of work because that means you have to um, take what channel that you're going to develop and then you have to produce that content. And that's just the awareness side of things, right? And so from developing these marketing processes that go into sales processes, you build funnels, you you build awareness first, and then you offer value for an exchange of an email or or just building a relationship with, with that person. So it's not just email these days. It could be a subscriber. It could be... Um, someone who's in your Facebook group. And then your goal is actually not to sell them right away. Your, your goal is to actually build a relationship, build trust, and then, um, and then help them with where they're at. And they will buy your course once they, A, know you, like you, and, and trust you, and know that you can help them help solve their problem. So that's the second way we're scaling. So those are basically the two ways that we're scaling this year that is solidly in the business plan. 
Yeah, and that's and that's all we're doing. I think it's also really important to know what not to do because uh, if you're trying to do too many things, you don't take care of business and do the things that you're you set out to do. Uh, before we go to the next segment, I just want to say to the audience, you're listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. To support this effort with a gift of any amount, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org donate. We'd certainly appreciate any help in ensuring working artists receive valuable business education in digestible formats they already consume. So Ari, I want to ask you, uh, your site simultaneously running this business and still doing illustrations. And of course, you know, someone, someone could, you know, poke you about that and say, well, why not go all in? I mean, is the goal to have multiple irons in the fire or, and, and multiple income streams or what? And of course, uh, you're even open to some criticism, uh, because there is kind of a prevalent myth out there of doing one thing. Well, why don't you just focus on doing one thing? Well, Mm -hmm. well, I, I would say to that is you have to be true to who you are. And I know for myself, I am definitely an artist. I love making artwork and telling stories. But at the same time, I'm definitely an entrepreneur. I just have all these ideas I want to make happen. And it's funny because for me, whether I'm making a children's book from scratch and an idea from scratch and then marketing it and getting out of the world, it's actually exactly the same passion that I have in making a business idea and actually building a business. So building a business is a lot of work, but it's also a creative endeavor. And that's just something that I... Like, I would just feel that my life was not as complete if I only did one and not the other. So for me, it's just a matter of staying true to who I am and, and my dreams and, and what I want. Now, there's a lot of truth to it's a lot of work. I mean, I work probably more than most of my friends. I work on weekends. I work nights. You know, <laughs> I uh, I basically have more than two jobs. So, you know, there's there's a price to come to that for sure. But I think so long as you're enjoying it, then you should do it. I mean, I feel so privileged that I can make stories and and work with talented editors and large companies that can help bring my ideas and books to to life. And they have the distribution channel. I don't have to start a business to do that. I'm just a partner in that. And then I can take the same passion and put into Storyteller Academy. And really, you know, the the mission of Storyteller Academy is also – my my own personal mission is to build an organization that can really help people with achieving their publishing dreams. And I think the real reason why I was able to find product market fit so early on in Storytel Academy was because I was also my own customer. I know exactly all those pains and mis- missteps of uh, failing and making mistakes. And so I can help people navigate that through Storytel Academy and expose them to top talents in the industry. And so I'm just really passionate about that as well. And, you know, I think Storytel Academy, um, I'm focused on making it a thriving, growing business and it is growing, but I want to make it even like a really robust system. And then, you know, I think at some point I want to actually start a business where I can also help artists start small businesses. And it just becomes about being true to who you are. I, I think that it's not, it's not a conflict, especially if you can build one business that leverages the other. Well, you know, it, it is part of the new economy. Uh, you know, in the old days, you, you sort of were expected to have one career for 40 years. Otherwise, you know, you weren't respectable. You couldn't be taken seriously. You know, a young man, you settle down and figure out what you're supposed to do. That was the lesson Johnny learned in, in some of the black and white sitcoms of 
of the old days. And and today that just doesn't fit. I mean, the average millennial stays in a job uh, 7.5 months. The the average uh, corporate worker um, of age, uh, it's between two and three years. And that number is actually shrinking every year. And it's partly because we know the company won't be there for us. Uh, As economic cycles come closer and closer together, the company's needs change. So the company needs to change staffing because of its current model Mm -hmm. uh, of staffing. It engages too many W-2s and not enough contractors. So the the result is that there's a whole host of people that after the 2007 crash simply aren't going to trust that um, they can have only one income stream, one paycheck, because it can evaporate overnight. And if you only have one skill, uh, then now what are you going to do? So you're your approach of doing a couple of things that are closely related, but you know, still to the core of who you are and what you're about, um, that's actually a, a form of economic security. I mean, you even made the argument that storytelling might, you, know, you don't understand storytellers who don't learn sort of the other end of it, which is the visual side. Uh, so I found that useful. Yeah. Uh, I want to just ask you in, in this final segment of the show a little bit about your branding. So we kind of got over the the stigma of being the multipreneur, the the multiple talented person and doing more than one thing. We sort of got past the myth of sequential planning to planning and executing in tandem. And uh, and we got over the first experiment where you sort of learn from failure and, you know, that didn't stop you. So (laughs) none of these things have really kept you from getting where you are. But I want to ask you, you know, your personality, if you go to the Storyteller Academy website, your personality, your photo, your video, your bio, your style, those are front and center on the website. So why become, mm-hmm. why become this brand versus just listing classes and sort of showing the product that you're selling? Why not sort of sterilize your marketing the way a lot of corporate brands do or just jump right to here's our list of courses or or did you consider other options and sort of this is how you you know what why yeah I, I think it starts with um with building a personal brand that storyteller academy is is based on people who are in the children's book industry currently publishing books and making books and of course that starts with me so um, i'm personally teaching the classes i'm currently making books and I'm teaching people what I do. So that's really the core of the brand for Storyteller Academy. And as we grow, the other people who will be on the websites will be my instructors and my students that get published. Actually, just kind of as a a, a fast side is one of our students uh, just got a book deal. And so we're going to feature her on on her website because that's really the, the brand story, right? Is that we help people learn the craft and get published. So in the beginning, we're starting with us as instructors, and this is what we offer because we do this for a living. And then as more and more storytellers go through our program and get published, they're going to be the heart of the marketing because that is actually the realization of, of our mission. Well, I noticed to that point, you kind of use um, sort of a news-like narrative or, or even a storytelling approach, one might say. And in the way in which you show works in progress and new storylines on your blog. So why do it that way? When did you start sort of showing things, letting people inside the process before it was essentially complete? I think that that's just a great way of making artwork approachable and for people to connect to each other. So I started really thinking about that in terms of just following blogs and following the 
the blogs that I enjoy. I always love to see the behind the scenes. And so I wanted our students to actually just share their honest experience. And I think in today's world of social media, it's, it really is about transparency and honesty and genuine connections. And so we can facilitate that through our blog. We're not marketing and selling in, in a way that doesn't feel just honest and genuine. And that's that's really what we wanted to do is just to to show the process and connect people connect, to connect storytellers. And uh, Ari, how extensively do you go out to other media, social media and, and other forms of media to sort of promote beyond just the website? So right now, we're primarily focused on Facebook because Facebook just has a really great large audience and has such amazing advertising tools as well as groups. And we're building that channel first. But the next channel I actually want to move from Facebook is onto YouTube. I think we could provide a lot of great value in short instructional videos that then can drive traffic to our website. And then I would say third after that is Instagram. But a mistake I did early on with Live in a Story was that we tried to develop too many channels at the same time and we didn't do a good job of any of them. And so we didn't get enough traction on, on them. So one thing I'm focused on right now is just to do one channel, get that channel to work really well before we move on to the next channel. Well, that makes total sense. Uh, all right. So last question, Ari, you have a book coming out in July. Mm -hmm. What should we know about that? Oh, I'm so excited to tell you about Mix. So Mix is, I feel, my best creative work that I've done so far, and it's about diversity. So it, it uses simple color theory. So in the beginning, there's red, yellow, and blue, and uh, they get in arguments of which color is the best color, and then they segregate, and they so they, they live in this fictional city, and then eventually a yellow meets a blue, and they fall in love, and then the world changes. So I'm just going to leave it off there, but it's it's a really fun, fascinating story about inclusivity and and just how our world becomes more colorful through mixing and interaction and making new colors. It's really dedicated to the future generations that are mixed. Well, that is all the time we have, but you've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. For more information on Ari's work, visit StorytellerAcademy.com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit ClarkHewlingsFund.org. And to sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit ClarkHewlingsFund.org slash donate. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Ari. It's been really great having you. Thanks so much.